Welcome to the FinTech Files. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jesse Chenard, the CEO of Monetago, and we're going to investigate the digitalization of financial workflows. Jesse, welcome to the FinTech Files. Thanks for having me. First off, what are we talking about when we talk about financial workflows? Can you give us a broad picture? So, yeah, if, if you look at what's happened in the business process management space, where you've got an example would be, say, a issuance of commercial paper, a financing of an invoice, any, any one of those, these are more business, a commercial side folks things, but on a retail side, it would be issuing, applying and issuing a mortgage, getting a credit card line of credit, anything like that, where basically you've got a client comes, they've got a need from a financial institution, and they've got an internal workflow. Obviously, they used to be paper-based. Now, most of them are somewhat digitized, but the level of digitization is at different stages. So some people have got homegrown software. Uh, they've built to handle these workflows. Some people have uh, large customized ERP programs or back office software like SAP, what have you. And a frightening amount of people are using things like Excel to still manage these things. And that's the extent of their digitization. So we look to not only help those people who are on Excel or potentially even using paper-based systems for some of it get to a, a better state, but then also the people who are digitized, but the problem that they have really is secure, secure communication. So how do they trust it in a trusted and secure manner, maintain privacy and bank secrecy laws, let their systems talk to each other. So those are, that's the area we focus on. So we're going to de- dive deep into this, but how did you get started? How did you get involved in this particular field? So yeah, I've, I've been doing technology startups for about 20 some odd years across a pretty broad range of industries. I invented how, they, how uh, the first video advertising uh, technology right around the time of uh, YouTube for the internet. I knew nothing about advertising at that time, but I created a new, a new but online video. Similar to my entrance into FinTech, I was semi-retired, had a couple of exits and some good investments and was mostly just hanging out, helping other founders. And a friend of a friend was working on some Bitcoin exchanges. I knew nothing about Bitcoin, but I have a strong background in, in networking and infrastructure, having built some pretty large uh, content delivery systems uh, over time. And I looked at the technology behind Bitcoin and where, where it was going with Ethereum and then the blockchain space in general. I got really excited about it. I said, stop work, just trying to sell Bitcoin. Let's figure out how we can use this technology to basically, the way I look at it is building large distributed systems has been a challenge and something that we've overcome being able to deliver content on mass, whether it be video or data or what have you, doing it securely is there. But being able to do complex applications whereby you basically have trusted parties um, that need to verify data on each side without having a central authority. That's a, it's a massive game changer for the internet, not just for, for money, finance, but also for everything from digital rights to you name it. So that's what led me down that down the path about six and a half years ago now uh, to, to, to starting Monetigo, was really diving into the technology behind it. And then I think what's kept me going over the years is really just sort of looking at it and going up is so massive. Coming from a consumer side of things, I was quite used to digital apps on my phone for doing my banking, sending money to my friends, paying my bills, sending money overseas, all super easy, all done from your phone. Pretty seamless. What I've learned is that on the business side of things or the commercial side of things, it's it's not, I wouldn't say a nightmare. A lot of people have their stuff together, but there is a ton of opportunity. And I think this technology that's come along isn't a magic silver bullet or anything, but it will have a pretty interesting impact on financial services and, and a ton of other areas as well. I see, I see. So there's, I can see, uh, there's, there's still some kind of link between yeah, the video and, and what you're doing. At least it's because the link is that you're cutting edge technology 
And of course, video might still be cutting edge technology, but a lot, a lot of has happened since then. Being in video myself, I really like that story. So now yeah. going back to Monetago, you told us about communication, security, easier collaboration between parties that don't have to trust each other. Can you can we go for some um, specific examples of what people would have to do before and how it how you can solve their problem? So a, a good example is a product that we've had running for just about three years now, and it, it aims to solve the problem of duplicate financing fraud and trade finance specifically for invoices. So basically what the product does is it enables people who are in the space, so banks, NBFCs, fintechs, marketplaces, to offer up the invoice details without actually offering them up. So we run them through a hashing algorithm that they all subscribe to a common network. It's on a per transaction basis. So it's very cost effective for even the smallest folks to join. And it basically identifies for them if someone else on the network has financed that invoice. In India, where it has been running for that, for that time, we also integrate with the tax authority. And we do a lookup to see that the invoice details that are registered with the tax authority match what's been presented for financing. So we basically have taken two things. One is this authentication piece, which is is a new capability that sort of it never existed before. So if you were looking to see if an invoice was genuine or what have you, you had no digital source for it. So you just had to go on trust. And same thing with the duplicate financing piece. There are lien registries in certain jurisdictions. India has one, Mexico has one, the US has a certain one for the UCC, the Universal Commercial Code. Typically, they don't go down to the invoice level details, though, in terms of lien marking. So that can obviously be problematic in identifying when when it has been uh, financed, even if you have a lien registry. Also, most lien registries are post facto. In a lot of cases, they're not that efficient. So what we provide it as a real-time in-line system that they, they put in by APIs right into their workflow. So as they're making financing decisions, the last thing they do before they make the payout is to check been financed before or not. And so we we launched that initially for three marketplaces in India, where it's permissible to upload your invoice across all three of them. And as we launched that, we realized that the factoring industry in general has this problem, not just in India, but globally. We've been now taking that working. We're actually in India Swift uh, reseller service, Swift India reseller service. So they offer it out to all the banks there. For us, it was a good uh, scale play to be able to get uh, into that channel. But now we're looking at how, how we take that service global. So what do they get today? They get a ability to basically, amongst a common group of peers, identify when an invoice has been financed amongst them. And and then also where these authentication sources are available. And we're not just looking at tax authorities, we're looking at IoT, things like people who might be measuring the oil contents of a, of a tanker, things like that, to do authentication against any type of asset, whether it be invoice, purchase order, bill of lading, to see if it's been financed elsewhere in another venue or by another institution. So what did they have before? You basically just had higher cost of credit and less access to credit. In essence, what this new capability does, it can bring down obviously your, your fraud risks um, and compliance issues. But then on the backside of it, it enables you to allocate more capital to this market segment, right? If it's not so risky anymore, which is what we've heard actually in a few developing nations that have been burned with large financing scandals. They've said, the central bank has said to us, we can't go back into the space unless we've got some way of not doing this again. And we're looking at this as a way to basically give the regulators the comfort that this won't happen again because we're all going to be using the system and we're using the system we won't be able to duplicate finance. And so they're looking at a way to actually increase their capital allocations toward trade finance because it's a very lucrative side of banking if you can eliminate that fraud. <clears throat> so yeah, it's, it's there, there really is nothing uh, that existed before other than just adding a few, few percentage points to the cost of credit to make up for the inevitable fraud that would, would happen. 
understood. Yeah, so just to take it uh, one step back and and really understand for people who are not fully familiar. So if I'm, uh, let's yeah. say, an exporter, I get an invoice, I can have, I can go to the bank and that's where the financing appears. But and the bank might tell me, OK, make sure you sign up to say you're not asking for some, not, not showing the invoice to, to many other banks. And I will sign. So way also, yeah. Yeah, we aggregated at the financier level because we, we looked at who was getting the value from this. I and mean, it's the financiers, so the banks or the, the fintechs or the MBFC that are taking the risk. And so we don't go and aggregate all the suppliers because that's a really large task, obviously, to get them all on board on our platform. We just go to the banks and say, look, sure. you're going to get this stuff in digital form from your suppliers. You supply us that and we'll run. You can check it on the back end. So it takes that whole part of the ecosystem out of the equation. We just go to the financiers and say, hey, do you, you know, everyone sign up to this. And you, you basically you can run all your invoices through it. Yeah, and I really like the idea that by eliminating fraud or reducing fraud, you reduce the cost and therefore you improve the experience, the, the cost again for the good players, right? Because they don't have to pay any more the risk that the bank is taking normally considering the risk of fraud. Yep. And, and can you quantify and also, that? So in India, we've had a little over 1%, between 1% and 2% hit rate against duplicate financing attempts. We don't look inside of the uh, fingerprints, so we don't know what number that what that mm -hmm. represents. Uh, but just extrapolating off average invoice size and stuff like that, it's, it's in the millions of dollars. And that's just with a very small segment of, of the market in India. India it's not one of the large factoring companies anyway, countries anyway. So yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it exists out there. And we know it, especially through some of the largest scandals, like the ones that have been coming out in Singapore, we're in talks right now with all those banks, because if they had been marking the BLs as finance as they were going through this whole thing, they'd be $60 billion richer. Yeah, there's definite immediate ROI that people can see. Yeah, there's an interesting flywheel as well, because if uh, everybody starts implementing it, then the process becomes more efficient, right? But yeah, like you say, the, the broader that you apply it, the more participants you get, the better. But even in talking to the, the commodities traders in Singapore, uh, where that big oil scandal happened, we talked to one of them who's you know working with us on potential project, and they basically said, if we had the top four traders in Asia, all all of us who were on this platform, we none we wouldn't have gotten burned. So it's not necessary that you need to go out and boil the ocean. You need to get tens of thousands of, of financiers mm -hmm. on it. In a lot of cases, like Mexico, for instance, we did the analysis with the top five banks there. They represent over 80 to 90 percent of all the financings in the market and 100 percent of the top financings. So you really just need three or four of those guys and you still get very effective coverage. As a matter of fact, the two largest banks there said to us, we just like to go ahead regardless of when the other guys can start. Because even though we're not going to get 100% coverage, there's still a probable statistic that someone will come to both of us because we're the two largest participants in the market. And especially with the big ticket item that you know, right, might run into the tens of millions of dollars, that's where it becomes all the more valuable. So it's a very exciting time for the company where you're, if you understand well, you're at the moment mainly focused on Asia, India, and you could soon become pretty global if, I'm, if I get it right. Yeah, the, so we've proven ourselves in India, looked at what the problem is, looked at how the product could evolve. Like I say, the different types of assets that are used in trade finance scenarios, like purchase orders, bills of lading, warehouse receipts, and seeing how it could be applied there. And so we're going to show them how it can arrest finance, domestic finance fraud, but also then how it can be applied to cross-border flows. So where, where goods may be going from Thailand to Singapore, or India to Australia, how the financiers on, on either side of that pond because you could potentially be doing an export, say an Indian export to Australia, 
they may go to their local bank and say, hey, can I finance my invoice? But there's also Australian financiers because you're buying from an Australian company will we'll factor for that Indian company and send the money. So there's duplicate finance potential there. So yeah, so it's pretty exciting. So off the back of that, the service will launch globally and it's really going to be somewhat plug and play. Your ability to set up a network in a specific region across a certain asset type is going to be uh, available to do at scale anywhere in the world. So the uh, Q3 time frame of this year. Wow. And how does it feel for you personally as a founder to have uh, to be on the verge or to have reached this milestone? And it's not the first time that uh, you're not a first time founder, as we as we mentioned earlier. For me, it's always exciting. When I started my video company, I'd be, you know, talking to the heads of CBS and Viacom and I'd be in Hollywood meeting with movie studios. And I'm like, who am I now? How did I get here? <laughs> And the same thing with this fintech company. It's like I get to meet governors or central banks and I, I, I talk with authority on banking conferences and people, you know, come up to me afterwards and have intelligent questions for me. And, and again, I have no background in, in finance before this. It's been a good quick study, um, but I think that's also somewhat beneficial in all these fields. If you go in without a lot of institutional knowledge, um, you may look at things a little bit different. You know, it's that problem of this is the way it's always been done. If you don't know the way it's always been done, it's much easier to look at it and figure out a new way to do it. So yeah, I, that's that to me is it's always this fun exciting challenge and yeah being on the verge is it's a lot more fun definitely than still pushing the hill of the rock up the hill but yeah it's to me it's just i just I, i get a kick out of all this stuff being able to look at these problems and pull together solutions and then actually the, the exciting part is like you say that getting it implemented and, and and seeing it go live and making an impact i feel in my last iteration i unleashed video advertising on the world or internet video advertising on the world which I don't know did all that good for my karma. But if I can wind up bringing down the cost of credit for a small supplier or a small manufacturer in India that winds up putting a few more rupees in their pocket and enriching the world, I think maybe I can balance my karma out a little bit with this one. So that's the other exciting part to me is making an impact. Absolutely. Hey, I'm into YouTube and, and do make a few dollars per YouTube video per, for, for advertising. So I wouldn't blame you too It's, much. But yes, yeah. I understand the karma point of view. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure that's what fascinates me with fintech is that things like that, which are seem to be very uh, well excuse me but possibly mundane and boring how cutting off a few beeps uh, here and there in terms of the funding when you multiply them on a global scale and then you think about what's the benefit to the society where's the transfer of wealth coming from that makes it extremely yeah. exciting because it's intermediaries versus yeah, the, the people who make a living out of it yeah wonderful perspective and let's go a little bit behind the scenes So we understand now how it works. Can you tell us how you built it and what platform you used to do, build it? When we, yeah, when we started out a minute ago, what, there was basically one blockchain in semi-production, which was Bitcoin. Ethereum was just coming along. So we, our initial proof of concept playing around, looking what you could do, what you couldn't do was, was primarily Bitcoin and Ethereum, just looking at those uh, uh, two protocols. And then Hyperledger came along and a bunch of people threw code in and then R3 came along and they wasn't sure what they were going to do yet. And then they quickly jumped on and built, started building Corda. So Hyperledger, I think was a little bit further ahead, especially having something that was somewhat usable. So we built our original proof of concepts for the Reserve Bank white paper off of Hyperledger fabric, but it was a pre-production version. So 0.64, I think. And so we, we had some good chops on Hyperledger there. It was moving along quite nicely still in 2018 when we launched our network, actually in 2017 when we were 
proposing to launch our network, Corda still was not at a state of where we could really use it for our purposes, the, at least the way that we were doing it, architected it. And so we continued using Hyperledger for that India network. So that ran for, well, I can't do that. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it ran up until day before yesterday when we actually finally officially ported it over to Corda. So we've been working now with R3 and Corda as partners for several years. So all the new tech that we've been building, I haven't even gone into a couple other projects we've done around commercial paper and bank guarantees in India, but uh, all the new tech we've been doing and the new version of the secure financing product, which is what we call that invoice duplicate finance item, it, it have all been built off of R3 quarter. We found a lot of success uh, in terms of the nuts and bolts on, on the cloud side of things. Typically what we've learned is that everyone would love to premise host it. That sounds so great. Meets the decentralized nature of blockchain and all this sort of stuff. Nobody has any internal systems engineer or DevOps guys that, that really know what they're doing anyway. And because of the way that stuff iterates and updates and things like that, it's pretty challenging to put it behind firewalls right now. So we actually do have a project mm -hmm. uh, in India where we'll be deploying our full, one of our workflows, commercial paper workflow within the data center of one of the clearing corporations over there. And that night, I have to say, that's been a, a pretty interesting effort. The cloud hosting has been our, our preference. And I'm sure a lot of this is new, but yeah, all this stuff's been in production and the yeah, there's been a lot of systems out there and stuff like that. But pretty much everything that everyone's doing, how they're deploying it, how they've coded it, what architectures are using, how they're making it highly available, all that stuff. Everyone's doing it just slightly different. And R3 has got great support. The Hyperledger communities was great support in the back in, back in the day as well. So we were working through it. We're getting the stuff set up, but it's definitely, it, it reminds me of Linux back in the day, like 1998, 99. You basically had to really bang your head against the wall even to figure out how to install it and then figure out how to get everything running. It was, there was not a lot of documentation. You'd read one mm -hmm. documentation said this, you'd read the next piece of documentation said do this, and you'd read something else that said something, do, do something completely different, and none of them would work. And you'd combine the instructions for, for a bunch of them and go, oh, look, it works now. So I feel like right now we're a little bit further along than that you know, in, in terms of how this really scales out. And just, I think, the repeatability of it, people's experience, the deployments out there, that, that friction, I think, will slowly ease over time as we just get more experience as a as an industry. Yeah, that's, so also we should tell you that we had someone from Corda, so from R3 earlier on the podcast, and it's an enterprise for, for everyone else, an enterprise blockchain technology, and I'll put the link so that people can understand yeah. deeper, but it's, um, so there's privacy, security that you wouldn't have with, with a public blockchain, right? It's, it's basically taken a lot of the elements that everyone was excited from the financial services side of things about blockchain and built those into a custom built application that doesn't have all the elements that people were extremely terrified of about public blockchain, like broadcasting all the data to everyone else. So it's, we found for us, obviously working in a highly regulated environment and trying to get regulators to understand and buy in and understand why we're not changing anything or breaking any rules going with someone like R3, who's got a very strong presence with central banks and regulators and tons of work educating them and building the product around it is pretty natural for us. Wonderful. So let's look a bit now in the future. What are you most excited about in your industry? I think it's pretty interesting. The way that we, obviously there's a long way to go here, but the way that you look at sort of the way that the cryptocurrency space has somewhat driven this first boom in, in enterprise blockchain, building the awareness, but us on the enterprise side going, oh, it's not quite right yet. Let's do this. I think some of the things that are happening now in crypto in terms of DeFi 
things like that are somewhat interesting when you start to look at how you apply them to traditional banking services. So for instance, this invoice thing, it returns in some cases up to 10% on a 60 to 90 day invoice. It's a phenomenal rate of return. If you could package that up and actually securitize it, bundle it up, offer it out even down to retail investors, there was an automated way of making sure that nothing was, no monkey business was going on. Fraud was basically completely eliminated. You then start getting people going and getting, like I said before, not just on the invoice financing side of things, every cost of credit comes down. And not only that, but people's savings start to work for them better than just sitting in a savings account. Having people who aren't sophisticated have maybe a thousand bucks in the bank, they, that money does nothing for them. It'll never do anything for them. That's why I think a lot of people got excited about DeFi because it's not even a real, we don't even know what we're buying and selling, but this thing is taking advantage of this and I'm staking capital and it's making money for me. So that's what is exciting to me on, on the back end of this. And I think it'll be interesting to see like the Coinbase IPO to me is very interesting. Someone said to me, how are they going to make meet their market value? selling Bitcoin, margins are going to compress, all these different things like that. I said, if I was Coinbase, I'd go buy Capital One or one of the large banks that, that's national that has a large customer base to it and then do exactly what I just said, start to think about how you can introduce retail products or even mm. better, better commercial products, institutional products that would then start to, like I say, digitize a lot of these back end pieces of somebody's mortgage. I'd buy a piece of this. I'd bet it rather than just having my money sitting in a T-bill or whatever if I'm trying to keep it safe. So that's what I think to me is what's really interesting. We've got a lot of work to do to just get the, the banks up to speed and digitized to figure out how we apply you know, these new crypto or DeFi technologies to traditional financial services, whether they're public or private, how they integrate settlement works, all these different fun things. But that to me is a forward-looking future. It's it's not necessarily how you eliminate banks because their function will always be there. They do take a hefty premium on the middle and there is a lot of overhead. And if you look at what size of compliance departments and the size of their payroll is, it's all because of this lack of trust, lack of digitization, lack of KYC, lack of basically being able to track transactions end to end in a secure manner that eliminates human intervention, fraud, or, or screw up. That is what's going to be really interesting in that day. The next 10 years, probably, in terms of how this all gets democratized. And it's going to be great for consumers and it's going to be great for economies, countries, things like that. And I think the right financial institutions are going to be the ones that are coding these applications. It's going to be the ones that are putting this all together, making sure that you know, how the plumbing all works, which is traditionally what they used to do. They used to go, I'd say, get a mortgage. They'd say, okay, great. Well, we've got these deposits. People are credit worthy. We'll check. We'll take the risk. And they make that connection uh, indirectly. So the technology will start to lead into that and i think that's what our industry will uh, be very helpful yeah it's a mind-blowing perspective and it reminds me of something i saw which is which was saying that the fintech is where the internet was at its beginning and that's how transformative it will be so there's a lot to think of there and just yeah. maybe a last quick question for you jesse is any tips any particular advice for fellow fintech founders i think that the biggest thing is validate your assumptions it's what I learned, and I learned this in, in not just fintech and I and all the things that I've founded, was usually I'd have a bright idea and I'd go, I'd get sometimes really far down a path before I'd go and talk to the customer. And because I either didn't have a great understanding of the industry or didn't know the nuances of that particular customer, would realize that 
part or maybe all of my plan was not going to work. So getting that customer feedback, that validation, getting uh, good advisors, definitely good mentors. I can't stress enough. And it's not hard to do with LinkedIn nowadays. You can re find someone in your industry who seems like they can get back to communities, blah, 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 good comments on their LinkedIn, whatever. Reach out to them and say, hey, make your pitch. This is what I'm doing. This is why it's relevant to you. This is why you're relevant to me. Can you give me 15 minutes of your time? You don't know how many times I've done that over my career. And it, almost like 90% of the time, they respond and say, oh, yeah, with the right pitch. Obviously not, hey, I want to sell you something. But you know what? I'm working in this industry. I saw that you've done this. Could you give me some advice? People love that. It strokes their ego. Definitely validation. Get some advisors. Get some mentors. And then throw yourself into it. A part-time founder is an oxymoron. You can't do it part-time. Yes, well, you're validating things, maybe getting your capital together. But if you're going to throw yourself into it, once you make that leap, uh, it requires a full-time effort. You can't... Uh, you have to live and breathe it um, and you have to love it. That's, and I think that's probably maybe my number one piece of advice. Find something that you really are interested in because it's the cliche saying, but find something you're really interested in for work a day in your life. And it's not only just for liking what you're doing, but also because it's going to crush your spirit at times. And you're going to have some really down days where you're like, why am I doing this? Why am I not just working at Google? I, I, I used to work across the street from Google. I'd stare into their, or sorry, live across <laughs> the street from Google in New York. And I'd stare into their cafeteria from my kitchen and I started two companies, actually three companies. And some days on those days where something just wasn't working or whatever, cash problems, whatever, I'd stare over and I'd look into the cafeteria on the fourth floor at Google and I'd just be like, why am I not working? Like I could be working there for half a million dollars a year talking about video crap. And so having conviction in what you're doing, having passion, having drive, knowing that you're solving a real problem that's cool to you, even if it's geeky or whatever, that's super important because when you have those down days, that's what will get you through is, okay, no, but I believe in what I'm doing and, I'm, and I want to do it. And it's obviously, we all dream about big paydays and IPOs and multiples and things like that, but getting your dream realized, getting your product to market, getting people to see your vision and buy into it and validate that you were right is, is big and an important thing as anything. Yeah. Wonderful. Nice. Just we'll, nice. Thank you so much for your advice. We'll finish on that. I really appreciate your time. And it was uh, wonderful to, to look into the future with you and get your advice for fellow entrepreneurs. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, George. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our guests who make this possible. Subscribe to never miss an episode. As this is a new broadcast, if you could give us a five-star review on iTunes and your favorite podcast player, that would be great. Let's work together to accelerate fintech towards the 2030s.